one thing I will say is business schools, entrepreneurs, everybody loves to talk about how to build a business and no one will teach you how to shut one down the right way. And it's just as critical a skill. There's not like a group of folks like, oh, you're shutting one down. You know, I've shut four down. Let me tell you how this goes. Like nobody wants to be that guy. Everybody in the industry wanted to see us succeed because we were taking risks. They literally couldn't. Well, we can go down this rabbit hole, but it's not going to help entrepreneurs. This is an aviation unique thing. I think it will help entrepreneurs. And he was literally on the phone call that helped close my Series D financing. That would be like McDonald's raising Wendy's their money. He looks at me and goes, I think you're an idiot. I don't know if you know, but airlines never make money. On your deathbed, you'll never regret doing it. You'll only regret not doing it. You'll say, I wish I would have. You won't say, I wish I hadn't. My name is Wade Ierly. I'm 39 years old. I live in New Canaan, Connecticut. My office today is in Stamford, Connecticut, just on the water here in the harbor. In Stamford, Connecticut, I mean, we were just talking about on the preview, you're kind of in the middle of a lot of things, it sounds like. Yeah, so New Canaan, where I live, Stamford's 20 minutes away. It's a little town of 20,000 people. We're 20 minutes from the beach and 20 minutes from the mountains, 45 minutes to Yale, 45 minutes to Manhattan. And really within two hours, we've got all the way up from Newport, Rhode Island, which is the world capital of sailing, all the way down to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. You'd be hard pressed to find something you want to do that we can't get access to within a day trip, which is kind of what I was describing I do with my boys on Saturdays. Since we have a worldwide audience, it's basically just a little bit northeast of New York, New York, if they're visualizing in their head. Why don't you tell us about what you do right now? Because I know we have a broad spectrum of things we want to hit on and you have a checkered past as far as like entrepreneurship stuff. So we we'll want to hit on all of it. But why don't you tell us about what you're focused on right now? And then we'll rewind it to the beginning. So right now I'm running a company called the Education Insurance Corporation. We are creating a new type of insurance. We're currently working with regulators to be approved to sell. So right now we don't have a product in market, but what we are doing is looking to insure your college degree. So most people go to college not because they have a lofty Victorian era design to be a better human being and be well-rounded in general, but in fact, they do it because they're looking to make more money when they graduate. That makes the way the U.S. finances education particularly troubling because it's so expensive and so heavily debt financed. It is the largest uninsured investment market in the world if you were to define it as an investment market. So we think good opportunity there. So we're creating a product that would tell students, we guarantee you'll make X amount more when you graduate college by virtue of having this degree and go to college. And then for five years, they send us their sort of tax returns. And if they don't out earn our coverage, we'll pay them the difference. Kind of makes sense what you're saying there, but can you just give us a basic rate, like example of salary and the coverage on something like this? So let's say that a student, we make two calculations on a student, 17, 18 year old kid getting ready to go to college. They get into a local state school and we think without a degree, they could probably go work today and make, I don't know, $15 an hour, let's say. Just for sake of conversation, I'll make the numbers up, but let's say they could make 15 bucks an hour. That's roughly $30,000 a year. And then if we think if they got a degree from that university, we think that they could make $42,000 a year. The difference, that $12,000 a year gain, that's what you're looking for. That's why you put off the workforce for four years. That's why you take out the debt and go to college because you want to make more money over the term of your life. And so you make this limited investment in the beginning years of your career. So what we do is we cover that $12,000 annual gain every year for five years after you graduate. So it's a $60,000 policy that they buy into as a freshman. So they're a lump sum purchase when they sort of go to school, just kind of like paying tuition. 
And then five years after they graduate, if they get a payout, they would get a single lump sum payout as well. How much would that cost for the student? Like how would they end up paying for it? Do they like do it in the beginning or what are the basic aspects of this? Well, I would love to be able to answer that. We don't know. We don't know because the regulators in the U.S. insurance is regulated by each of the 50 states individually, not by the federal government. And as a result, we are working with state regulators to figure out how they want us to price it and market it. So I actually don't have an answer to that. I would love to have an answer to that, but we don't yet. Right now, do you still kind of consider this a startup? Because you've been at it for a little over a year, right? Yeah, it's definitely a startup. We took uh, $2 million in seed money about a year ago. and in every way they start. We've got about eight people here. We're all distributed. I've got uh, you know, a guy in Dallas and a guy in LA and a team member in Idaho and a team member in Chicago and three or four of us here in the New York City area. Well, I'll leave that off right there. We'll kind of stop there and we'll come back to your company. And did you want to say the name of it? Because I'm not sure if we talked about it, the name of it. Yeah, it's called the Education Insurance Corporation, EIC.co. It makes a lot of sense, right? If we're talking about education insurance, it's very easy to understand. So <laughs> when I was looking you up, we have a checkered pass as far as the entrepreneurial journey you have. What would you call yourself as far as what everything that I'm looking at and what you've done in the past? I sometimes get described as an innovator in heavily regulated space. That's probably the most consistent way to describe what I've done. So I spent a few years in national security and intelligence for the U.S. government. I spent a few years in politics at the White House, et cetera. I spent a few years and built my first companies really in private aviation and airlines and now doing insurance. The common thread that would run through all those experiences is certainly heavily regulated space. Well, what do you think is the best place for us to start off if we're like talking to entrepreneurs who want to learn from your past and things you've done? Is it best that we just jump into like Surfair or is there a better way to go about this? The entrepreneurial journey has so many different starting points. You could go back to when you're a kid and you're selling greeting cards in July from a wagon door to door at nine years old to what made you to make the decision to leave your stable government job and do something as nutty as starting an airline. Every entrepreneur's journey is a little bit different. They do have a couple common traits, a certain level of fearlessness, a hopeful nature. There's something optimistic in starting something new. It's a little like having a child that way, right? Every parent's excited for what that child could become. Every entrepreneur is excited for what that business could be. It takes a level of, I sometimes call it irrational optimism and blind confidence. You have to believe it's going to work out and then really think that that's going to be the case and it'll actually come to fruition. And then, you know, the old Christian common phrase is you work like everything counts on you and pray like everything comes from above. And then usually things will kind of work out. Why don't we start off where you were born, actually? Because I've been seeing like where you went to schools. It looks like University of Central Missouri and you went to BYU. But where are you from? So I was born when my parents, my dad was in school at BYU. So I was born in Provo, Utah. I lived in the mountains until I was three. And we moved to Missouri, just outside of Kansas City, Independence, Missouri. My dad started a little Tari store in 1982. So my dad was an entrepreneur. And I grew up largely there. And then for three years when I was in high school, we actually lived back in Provo, Utah. So I went to high school there. And then we moved back my senior year to Missouri again. And I went to college about an hour from home. It's a maybe embarrassing story, but I did not know that you were supposed to apply to college. So I drove to a university in August and I asked how to sign up for a dorm. And they said, uh, oh, it should be in your packet. And I was like, well, I don't think it was in mine. <laughs> 10 minutes later, they started saying, did you, did you apply? Well, just tell me what I need to do and I'll do it. And they're like, no, man, you had to apply in like <laughs> February. But, and so I got into college because a kind hearted registrar took pity on me and I had 
halfway decent test scores. I sometimes tell that story as what I call the perfect storm of stupid. But we moved my senior year. I graduated at semester. I was two years younger than my peers. Nobody knew me. None of my peers were applying yet. My dad went to eight semesters of open enrollment. What for him was the local church college and my mom didn't go to college. There was just nobody that knew and give me the advice at the time. I'm the oldest of eight kids. And I don't know, like I said, just a perfect storm of stupid. So it's because you went to a very small school and when you went to college, you thought you'd just kind of sign up? No, I went to the second largest university in Missouri at the time, I think. Well, before the university, because you're talking about when University of Central Missouri is where you showed up. Yeah, I moved my senior year of high school from Missouri back to Kansas City. You would think the high school would have told you, right, that you have to apply? Except I graduated at semester. So I graduated in December at a new high school that I only went to for one semester. Okay. So there wasn't like a guidance counselor that knew me. No one had like, you know, grown up with me for four years. Nobody knew me or who I was. And then in December, I was done. So it just, there wasn't anyone. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I was like, even if you went there for one year, I thought, but it basically was like half a year and sounds like you didn't know many other people. So I guess it worked out. You graduated. I did. Yeah. <laughs> I graduated from Raytown High School and then went to Central Missouri State, which they renamed University of Central Missouri. I went to maybe two and a half years from 96 to 98. And in July of 98, I moved to Moscow. I lived in post-Soviet Russia for two years, serving a Mormon church mission. So I was there under Yeltsin and as Putin took over. And then I returned to the States. Well, before you were talking about returning to the States, can you tell us about that? Because I don't think many people are going to experience going overseas for a Mormon trip for a couple of years. And what's it like in Moscow? Yeah, I mean, Moscow then is probably very different than it is today. But it was a little bit the Wild West in the sense of they were still developing rule of law and coming to understand what uh, capital markets do. And they were transitioning. They were in that core of that transition period from a centrally controlled economy to a market economy. Yeah. And you're there. And I mean, my work was effectively knocking on doors and talking to folks about Jesus Christ. If you could think of a harder place to do that than the world capital of atheism, where that had been institutionalized for 70 years. It seems like maybe it built you up as an entrepreneur that there's going to be a lot of rejection. And I didn't know that they were all into atheism there. So that would make it doubly as difficult, it sounds like, to convert people. Well, I mean, atheism was effectively the state religion for under communism. And then after communism fell, the Russian Orthodox Church sort of reemerged. And everybody, if you will, had a grandma who was Russian Orthodox. But they wouldn't be because it would hurt their prospects with the party and their ability to advance in their careers during that 70-year period. It certainly does, I think, prepare you for entrepreneurial work. You get used to doing things that are weird that other people don't like or aren't comfortable with or don't approve of. You get used to hearing no a lot and it's okay. You develop an innate sense of confidence in who you are that allows you to sort of soldier on when there are no external validating signals that tell you you're succeeding. I imagine it was cold there. Was that a little bit different than where you were from? You know, it does get cold there, but it's, I don't know, it's probably not too different from Minneapolis or something. Right. It's cold in the winter, but it's hot in the summer. First thing I did, so you wear white shirt and ties every day as missionaries. Wherever you're at in the world, you've probably seen missionaries running around with, you know, black name tags and white shirts and ties. The first thing you did in Moscow was you cut all your shirt sleeves short, all the long sleeve shirts you came with, because they got so dirty around the rim at your wrist from, you know, subways and just everything around you that it just was filthy and you couldn't clean them. And so you cut everything short and it was so hot in the summer that it didn't matter at all. In the winter, you were wearing enough layers that it didn't matter either. But you effectively wore short sleeve white shirts year round. Unexpected when I left. Well, did you enjoy that experience or no? Oh, I loved it. Yeah. I loved it. What do you love about it? So you spend all day, every day with no concern for yourself. So what, when you're a kid, you're growing up, 
culturally, you save money to prepare for your mission. You pay your own way. And so every day your job is to figure out how to help the people around you who may or may not want your help. And you're 19 years old and you don't know much about the world. But I remember working with a guy who had just come out of prison. He wanted to quit smoking. And he said, it's the worst for me when I first wake up and when I go to bed at night. That's when the cravings are the worst. So we would show up 10 minutes before his alarm would go off every morning. And sort of we'd be there almost as if to tuck him in at night, right? We'd be there at 8.30 or 9 o'clock at night. And we'd read from the Bible with him. We might sing songs, like whatever it was, it was just designed to distract him so he wasn't feeling the cravings to help him quit smoking. I remember scrubbing up with Operation Smile and standing in and helping to translate live surgeries as the American surgeons who were fixing cleft palates on a bunch of kids as they were teaching their Russian counterparts how to do it and leave less scarring behind. Logic being that your smile is the first thing most people see and it can have real impacts in sort of the confidence of the individual and the life choices that they make. You can do a lot of good in the world that way. And so we stood up and had surgeries going on on both sides of me and I'm scrubbed up like a surgeon, even though I'm clearly not touching anybody and just translating what the Americans are saying to the Russians. You get to do all kinds of interesting things, but the job is to effectively be the savior's hands and feet while you're there and talk to people about scripture and the gospel a lot. But mostly it's just about how do you help the people that are there? And you really learn to love sort of the people that you're serving. And I think that's true no matter where you serve in the world. For me, it was Moscow. You're coming back in like, what, 2002? I was there from 98 to 2000. Okay. So I came back in July of 2000, yeah. Okay, so you're just early 20s at that point? Yeah, I'm 21, yeah. Okay, so you're coming back, drinking and partying? <laughs> no, Mormons I don't drink, I, yeah. I know, so. that was part of my joke. <laughs> I did live in a fraternity house. Actually, I came back, I went to my sister's wedding, and then I took a job in the Philippines. And I moved to Manila, and I worked there until... November or something. I flew home to vote and then I stayed in the US and went back to college and moved into a fraternity house. Wow. This is setting up why you started your own airlines if you're already traveling the whole world, huh? <laughs> I was lucky enough to sort of have some random opportunities early on in my career yeah, that exposed me to parts of the world I would have never otherwise probably been able to see. Well, what's been the best parts about seeing these parts of the world? I think you learn that everybody has a story to tell that everybody's valuable. It really, traveling, I think, really disabuses you of the notion that you can judge someone's worth by the clothes they wear and the car they drive. You know, some of the most wonderful, kindest, most genuine human beings you'll ever meet don't have any means, but they're also often the happiest people. And then you'll find wonderful people that have had a lot of success in their life. And you just realize that there's no correlation between your material wealth and your personal wealth or your personal happiness. And you see that by getting a little bit outside of yourselves and seeing that by the time most people are 17 or 18, the world that they've been exposed to consists of their high school, right? And the biggest problems they've dealt with were inside that high school. And the 99.9% .9 of the things they think about are inside that high school. To break that immediately and find out there's a world beyond you, beyond your high school, beyond yourself, I think is really important early in a career. So what drives you now if it's not those material things? <laughs> I got three kids. <laughs> you don't have eight? You're not planning on more? <laughs> Three's good. I'm super happy with three healthy, happy little boys. But I think I remember at one point in my career, I was fired rather publicly from a company I'd started. I, it was an article in the Wall Street Journal about me being fired. And I remember thinking, you know, you think all those negative thoughts about how like, I'm a failure as a human being, as a husband, as a father, as a founder, as a CEO. Like you start to just feel super negative about stuff. And I just remember I didn't want my kids to see it be okay that dad didn't go to work in the morning. So I got up and I got dressed for work and I left. And I just 
wouldn't be home. And I very quickly took a job, even maybe even the next day, I can't remember now, with an investment bank in Manhattan, but I couldn't not go to work. I didn't want my kids to see that. And so I find a lot of motivation and making sure I'm modeling the behavior that I want my kids to have to know that work hard and be kind and you'll do all right. Fundrise is the future of real estate investing. See, with Fundrise, you can invest in million-dollar deals without writing million-dollar checks. And this level of real estate investing was previously only reserved for the wealthiest investors. Fundrise enables you to instantly access high-quality, high-potential real estate projects from the high-rises in D.C. to multifamily apartments in L.A. So getting high with Fundrise will actually be one of the best decisions you ever made. Oh, and by high, we mean you'll have access to highly vetted real estate projects that are managed by Fundrise's team of real estate professionals. With Fundrise, you now have the benefit of investing in real estate's consistent cash flow and long-term appreciation without all the headaches that come with managing a property yourself. They make it easy to inspect every project in your portfolio and will keep you updated on each project's progress in real time. So give the future of real estate investing a try today. Go to Fundrise.com slash millionaire. That's Fundrise, F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com forward slash millionaire to have your first three months of fees waived. And that link is available in your episode notes below. And don't forget, by clicking the link in our episode notes, you help me and my team. Thank you for supporting the show by checking out our advertisers so they can help financially support our podcast. Do you want to talk about that? Like, when was that? Like, what day? Sure. That was probably March of 2014, something like that, I'm going to guess. Okay. That was a little while before. I know there's a few other things that we had talked about up to that point, so we can wait to talk about it if you want. Yeah, whenever. Everything up to that point, is there anything in your entrepreneurial journey? Because, like, when I'm looking at the LinkedIn, that's usually what I looked. I'm seeing, like, worked with Bush Cheney in 2003 to 2005. Yeah, so I came back from Manila, finished my degree, and then I took a job in D.C. with the Federal News Service. It was a news monitoring service where we would track sort of mentions of your presence in the news and do that for celebrities and politicians and whoever else. And I sold that product for the Federal News Service and discovered that they were floating themselves an interest-free loan by not depositing our 401k monies into 401ks. They were effectively embezzling. And uh, who was the company I was working for? Oh, okay, okay. So I brought it to light, and they weren't too thrilled with that. So I left Federal News Service. I was fired, and for sharing that information, I think with the rest of my team, I didn't know what to do. And I had a friend who was working on then Vice President Cheney's wife's staff, and she said, "Well, you know, we have these advanced teams that go ahead of her when she travels. I could send you on a trip if you'd like, and you can try it out and see if that's something you enjoyed." I ended up really enjoying that. And so I spent a year and a half sort of on both sides of the house, both on the political sort of Bush Cheney 2004 re-election campaign, but also on the White House side, traveling ahead of the vice president then and managing his, usually his press logistics on the road as he traveled. So he usually traveled Mondays and Thursdays and I would travel six days a week. And you just travel ahead and make sure everything's squared away. And there's a famous Time magazine cover with George W. Bush on it where they put the red M behind him. So it looks like little devil horns sticking out of his ears. <laughs> yeah. Was that you? That was definitely not me. <laughs> you were trying to make sure that didn't happen. But that's what we do. I like I, Make sure like, all right, the press cameras are going to be here. What's going to be in the background? Make sure that the visuals are what we want them to be. The lighting is what we want it to be. 
brief him in the motorcade on what's going to happen. He jumps out, does what he's going to do, looks good, leaves, and then I leapfrog to the next event. And that's kind of how that would go. So we did that for about, I don't know, a year and a half, probably June of three to probably January of 05. Right. Well, so then from there, you went to the Pentagon? So I was there 03, 05. And then I went up to the US-Russian summit, which was run out of Harvard. Harvard acted like a Bain-style consulting group for the post-Soviet Russia, helping them transition into a market economy. And so the U.S.-Russian summit, which was at the uh, U.S. RIS is what it was called, but it was the International Economic Alliance's U.S.-Russian summit was still run, kind of spun out of Harvard then. And they brought together academia and government and business leaders and just you know, once a year got together and talked about how things were developing in Russia and what they ought to do differently. And they facilitated a lot of sort of meetings among those folks and dialogue. And so I went up in 04 and then again in 05 and was hired there as director of membership and corporate partnerships. And so I did that in 05, but Russia had in 2005, what they call the, their 9-11, but it's called the Beslan massacre. A bunch of children were held captive by Dagestani rebels, if I'm recalling right, and ended up a whole bunch of them were killed in the rescue operation. And so we called the summit off that year and I didn't want to sit on my hands for another year. So I, so I applied to graduate schools and I spent 05 to 07 then in Utah at BYU where my dad had gotten his undergrad, which is not an uncommon choice for a 20, I don't know, seven-year-old single Mormon guy. Mormon single years are like dog years. So by the time you're you know, 27, you're already like, you might as well be 50. So I went out there to try to meet Mormon girls and get married and, uh, while getting my degree. So I did that to 07. And then in 2007, as I left, I joined an intelligence agency and worked for the Department of Defense for the next four and a half years. Why don't we fast forward now then? You're there for several years and we're getting up to 2012. And that's when you started your own airline. Yeah. Up to this point, it didn't seem like there was a whole lot of entrepreneurship. I'm sure you're obviously learning skills along the way, but there hadn't been a, like a company started that you started. Or I knew you said early on your dad started an Atari store. So I don't know. Did you always want to be an entrepreneur once you knew about that? Or just lead us into that part. Yeah, I did always think I wanted to be an entrepreneur but I couldn't think of things I didn't want to do. Right. I understand that because a lot of us have that issue. You have so many things and then you don't want to get necessarily locked in on it and you're kind of waiting for the perfect timing to do something, it would seem like. We spend most of our early lives working to make sure every door is open to us. And one of the things you learn as you get older or further in your career is when you make decisions, you step through one door, it starts closing off other doors and people can get paralyzed in that spot. When you get your degree that you hope opens up a number of doors for you and you could go to grad school or you could take jobs like this or like that. But eventually, as you get develop a greater and greater expertise, those opportunities get dramatically reduced as you continue to develop. I was always chasing whatever opportunities I thought were most interesting and not necessarily on any sort of a path. That's the only thing I had that demonstrated sort of an entrepreneurial vein is that I clearly wasn't in a career or on a path. So in 2010... I deployed to Baghdad from 2009 to 2010, and I came home two weeks before my first son was born. And, you know, my wife said, I think you ought to think about doing something else for a living, right? Maybe stop thinking you're a tough guy and come be a dad to this little boy. So we started looking to transition out. So the first thing I did was I came out of the field and I started, I worked as an economist covering Europe and NATO at the Pentagon and some other things there at the Pentagon and did some consulting at the NSA while I was applying to business schools and thinking that that would be a good sort of transition point. I had told my wife I wanted to start a business, and she said sort of like, 
that's great gear. I'll believe you can do that when you have a business degree. So I took the GMAT and I applied to business schools and I didn't get into any. I remember I applied to University of Virginia among a number of other schools. They had a thing where you could call them in the summer and they would tell you why you didn't get in. I called them. I said, so what could I have done different? I thought I had a pretty good White House staffer, intelligence officer. I had a neat background, at least. I thought I'd be a good candidate. And they said, well, we usually like to have someone with a better GMAT score. And I said, I can't imagine that's the problem with me. What GMAT score do you have for me? And they did not have my GMAT score, the correct GMAT score. <laughs> so when she told me, I said, do you want to find my score? <laughs> she said, what do you mean? I'm like, that one's not mine. She went and was able to find the one that I had submitted. And she goes, oh, oh no, you would have gotten in. You definitely would have gotten in. <laughs> But I was immediately turned off. Oh, yeah, I would be dropping some F-bombs. Like, (laughs) I was very much not impressed with university in that moment. She's like, oh, we've got this global program we could get you in right now, you know? And I'm like, no, I think I'm good, but I appreciate it. I'm going to have to pause this right now. So that's now I only know you ended up doing your company right now, right? So certainly higher ed needs some help. (laughs) So I could understand how you got into what you're doing right now. But yeah, continue on. Being in your shoes, I could not imagine. I would not be happy either. Yeah. So I'm like, all right, I reapplied and I reapplied to a number of schools, not UVA. I applied to <laughs> eight schools the first year, I think five schools the second year. And I got into one. And I remember telling my wife all along the way, like, none of these schools should let me in, but all I have to do is sit inside the error rate for one. Like every process has an error rate. If I can be the mistake they make, I'll feel really good about it. So I got into Stanford. And so our plan was to move to Palo Alto in July. But at the same time that I interviewed at Stanford, I had gone down to LA where a friend of a friend had introduced me to some guys that were starting a startup incubator. I went down to LA and I chatted with those guys about what they were doing and the idea that I had been working on. So my brother graduated from Embry-Riddle, which is probably the top flight school in the country. If you're going to fly a space shuttle, you either were an Air Force pilot or you graduated Embry-Riddle. He was a pilot now and needed a job. So we'd been working on an airline concept. And so I talked to him about that and said, look, we want to create a subscription airline where you don't sell tickets, but you pay a flat monthly fee and you can fly all you want. And they sort of told me what they were doing. So that's cool. And I didn't apply to the incubator. I remember saying to them, why would I come? You say you want tech companies and we're not that. And he said, well, we're going to invest in companies we think will make money and we think you'll make some money. And so they did offer me a spot, even though I hadn't applied. And the class there started in January. And so I convinced my wife that if you're going to take out a quarter million dollars to go to business school, An extra three months without salary is probably a rounding error. So I left early and I went out to LA in January and I left my wife and son in Maryland. She said, look, I'm going to move once, either to Palo Alto or to LA. So you go figure out if it's going to work in LA and if it does, we'll move there. And if not, we'll move to Palo Alto. And we were able to be successful. We built a team, built a company, raised four and a quarter million dollars in June of that year. And we're sort of off to the races. So I turned down Stanford which was a little like breaking up with a girl you still love because you put a lot of work into that relationship and sort of getting in. But I'll always be grateful. I went and spoke to the admissions office there. I said, you know, can I defer? You know, I like put a lot of work into this. I still think Stanford would be a great opportunity. And she said, no, but we don't do that. But you're starting an airline, so you can just come back and teach someday. And it made me feel really confident. I had a friend named Yanda who had gone to Stanford and I asked him about it. He'd gone to business school there and he said, oh, I had the best two years of my life were at Stanford. I had great experience. He says, it was a $20 million mistake, but I loved it. And I was like, what do you mean? He said, well, I had an equity offer at Google, but I went to Stanford because it's never the wrong choice, right? (laughs) Those two things sort of gave me enough confidence to say, all right, plus I was pretty excited about what we were building. So we built that airline. It seemed like it just kind of happened overnight, this airline. Can you talk about it more specifically? 
Who was at Emory Riddle? I mean, that's down in Daytona Beach, right near me. My little brother was at Emory Riddle, and he needed a job. We would get together on three-day weekends at night whenever we could and family events or whatever. And we just kept working on iterating with different concepts around aviation. We knew we couldn't do something everyone else was already doing and try to execute that. We needed to be different if we were going to do this. We started with like, all right, we're going to fly people around in the Mountain West, but we knew there was some demand that maybe other people had ignored. We looked at different kinds of aircraft, all kinds of things. And we settled on the subscription model. And then he and I, working with your brother is interesting because, you know, we shared a room until I was 16 and he and I were arguing over what we ought to name the airline. So we finally put up a placeholder website under the name Plane Red, which was an homage to JetBlue. And the single page launchrock.com website, right? It's just like, here's an image, little email capture, 10 lines about what we're trying to do, a subscription airline, all you can fly. And we just put it out there. And we didn't know anything else more than that about web design or development or anything else. And about six weeks later, I remember we were sitting on the beach somewhere. I can't remember where, probably in Maryland or Delaware. I thought we got to check the website and see if anybody's been out to it. And they had, we had inquiries from Chicago Tribune and Washington Post and all sorts of folks. We had thousands of people had signed up. And it was in that moment where we said, oh no, I think we've just validated the market for what we're looking for and we don't know what to do next. So you put up a landing page and it sounds like you and your brother would just brainstorm ideas and you had thought just with his background and flying and everything, y'all kept running numbers and thought this would work. Then you put up the landing page and this is what happened? Yeah, we thought a subscription model would be distinctive enough and interesting enough that it was different than what everyone else was doing and that we could pick routes where we thought that would work very well, where people fly back and forth regularly, where essentially they commute in the air. And so we sent out a dozen emails and a Facebook post to friends and family. And when we had, you know, 12,000 people on a waiting list, we thought we're onto something here. And I didn't know what to do. And so I was playing flag football with a friend of mine named Reed Farnsworth. And I remember we were cleaning our cleats after a game on a random Saturday in DC. And I said, I'm thinking of leaving my job to start an airline. And Reed's a master's in applied economics from Johns Hopkins. And he's at the Federal Reserve covering banks over 25 billion as everything collapses in 08, 09. And he looks at me and goes, I think you're an idiot. I don't know if you know, but airlines never make money. And I was like, yeah, I, th- I think it's because they do it wrong. And here's what I think we could do. And in effect, that ended up being my first pitch, although I didn't know that. And so we talked it through. And after an hour or two, we went to breakfast together. And he goes, I think you might be onto something here. I said, yeah, but I don't know what to do next. And he said, well... I started a nonprofit once and what we did was we had a little weekend retreat and we brought a bunch of smart people together and we broke out working groups and we sort of workshopped that you should do something like that. I said, oh, that'd be amazing. Can you help me make an agenda? And he did. And so we sat down, we built an agenda and over Veterans Day weekend, so November 11th, 2011, we brought 25 friends and family, anybody we thought was smart, dentists, attorneys, accountants. Yeah, you forgot my invitation. <laughs> well, I didn't know you, right? But literally anybody we thought would be interested or smart or willing to spend a day. Friday was a federal holiday. And so the Washington, D.C., just as a town, just shuts down. We borrowed a conference room at the Nuclear Energy Institute because we had a friend who worked there and said, yeah, well, you can use our conference room. Sure. We spent probably 200 bucks on snacks at Costco and brought everybody in and we sort of laid out like, here's the idea and the concept. My brother flew in and here's the idea and the concept we've been thinking about. Here was the response we had online but we don't really know what to do next. So the problems as we see them break into like these four or five buckets, you know, marketing and operations and legal regulatory and finance and whatever else. And everybody just sort of broke into teams talking about how they would address each of these things. And so after two days, we kind of all sat back together and said, okay, so what I need to know, because I'm thinking of leaving my job to do this, is this a good idea? And five of the folks in the room that day said, we'll leave our jobs and come do it with you. And I had a CMO, I had a COO, a CFO, a general counsel, and my team just sort of like all came together in that moment. 
several of us had what I would call good backup plans, right? I'd been applying to business schools and had gotten in. Reed was applying to business schools as well and got in. And so we sort of had options in August or July or August that we could go to. So it gave us this little window to try something risky. And so we did. What would you suggest if someone was listening and they wanted to do that? Was that a good experience? Because it sounded like it. But to me, it just seems like it'd be kind of hard to get that many people. But if they did it on a smaller scale, what suggestions do you have? Because that seems like it makes a lot of sense that getting smart people around you and hopefully they're not all there just rah rah and you, they're actually looking at numbers and making sure it makes sense. Yeah. So you can maintain 400 relationships before your mind sort of taps out and you can't remember much about the people that you meet. So most people have around 400 people that they know and maintain those relationships with. Most people are effectively tapped out. They could be classmates. They could be folks you go to church with. They could be people in your community. But the reality is you can find 20 people. And we don't because we're afraid of being embarrassed. We're afraid that it's a bad idea, that we're going to stand up in front of 20 people we know, have relationships with, admire, respect, whatever. And we're going to let them pick apart this idea we have that we're starting to be hopeful about, right? It feels risky, but it's the opposite. Because if you find out in a one or two day session with 20 people you admire that it was a bad idea, you might save two years worth of undercover work you're going to do on the side where no one knows what you're working on to only learn the same lessons you could have learned in a day or two. It's the surest way to sort of get going. And if you can get buy-in, if you can find people who aren't just giving you the answer they think you want to hear, but can really speak critically to you, tell you what the strengths are, what the weaknesses are, it's super powerful. I actually recommend that when you're thinking of starting a business, that you do some sort of a little get together, whether it's five people around a campfire or 20 people in a living room or in a conference room, get advice and counsel from other people. I think every good entrepreneur knows that if they're the smartest person in the room, they're probably in the wrong room. And you probably know a lot of people smarter than you. So put them in a room and ask them hard questions. Let's say we get past that, the idea that we do actually do no more than 20 and you know the people who come there. But let's just say for sake that there's only five people that we can think of that we want to invite. Yeah. But I mean, just because it seems like it'd be hard to make those people stay for a couple of days. But even if it's a one day session, I'm thinking that this is a useful information for someone who else wants to start a business. Maybe it's a well, restaurant or whatever. Yeah, if it's three hours over breakfast, like if your idea is worth something, can you spend 60 bucks and invite four friends to breakfast, cook them pancakes and spend five bucks? Doesn't matter. Whatever resources you've got, like, can you get advice from smart folks? You don't even have to know them that well, right? A college professor, your dad's boss, it doesn't matter. But some folks that you think are smart, like, hey, I'm thinking of starting something. Can I buy a breakfast or can I make your breakfast and get some advice? And what's interesting there is every human being, it's human nature, you like to get advice. It's flattering. So someone respects your thoughts, quality of your ideas, your opinion is valuable. It strokes someone's ego. So you like to be asked that. So as hard as it is to say, can I get some help? Actually, people love to give help, especially when it costs them nothing, you know, but a meal and they're happy to opine and give you their advice. So that's a very, very good opening salvo or first step. Can you just tell us what you thought about the generic economics in the beginning? I guess it makes a lot of sense too that you had that many people if you're going to start a business this big. You know, maybe most people are starting off with a couple thousand dollars and doing a smaller business or whatever. But when you're doing something this scale, obviously you'd want a lot more feedback from a lot of smart people. But what were the basic economics when you're starting and how did it change? In six months, we raised three rounds of funding. We raised four and a quarter million in equity, six million in debt, and then another seven million in equity. Turns out when you're buying planes, it's an expensive business to build, right? So it was two grand a month, all you can fly. I think we started at 1350 a month. We ran a fixed route of flights. So think of it like a city bus system where we sold bus passes. 
The difference is we're doing it in planes. We're doing it in planes that have fewer than 10 seats because 10 or more seats is where the Transportation Security Administration's regulations kick in. So we could get you in and out without TSA if we stayed below that. It also meant we only had to, like our capacity was limited. So we only had to sell so many memberships to break even or be profitable. But that's what we were doing. We could sell someone one time, but it was a consistent revenue stream instead of having to sell new tickets every month all the time. And that was sort of the business and how the economics around it worked. Yeah. And so what happened over those two years that you're doing Surfair? Well, we raised three rounds of funding in six months, which sounds like a great story. But in the end, means we lost control of the company faster than would normally happen in a growth cycle. I mean, it was a rocket ship. We went from, you know, five to 27 employees in the first year and a half when we weren't even licensed to fly yet. And we were still dealing with regulatory. And then on May 31st, when we got regulatory clearance in 2013, we went from 27 to 82 employees in two weeks because our first flights were June 12th. And we had to hire maintenance staff. We had to hire pilots and we had to hire. So it was just a massive hiring exercise and an exercise in growth and scale. And we had three mishires in that period with three folks who didn't really fit with the culture of the company, didn't make it very long and everyone else was great. So I thought our error rate was pretty good on the hiring piece, but we lost control of the company faster than would normally happen. And along the way, our company had a J curve. So we were not raising enough money in the sense that we kept underestimating how much we needed, which is why we're having to raise over and over again so quickly. But we were hitting our benchmarks. We are from sales to operations to whatever the goals and targets were, we were exceeding them, but we were still losing money. And so occasionally we would find folks that weren't a good fit for us, but one of our investors had an associate of his firm that wanted to clone our model in India. And so we would send him the talent and say, oh, here's a guy that was great, but not a good fit for us. Unbeknownst to me, that meant he had a backup team ready to go. And so when we lost control of the company, they said, hey, great. And we've got this other team and we're going to put our associate in charge of the company now. And they did that and they fired the founding team. So the investors sort of got the company. It was very, it was a rocket ship company. And so folks, I think, got a little greedy and a little dishonest around the table. And so I didn't understand everything that was happening at the time. But looking back, you kind of see where there were some red flags that I missed. We lost the company. They brought in the former CEO of Frontier Airlines and then basically we're able to go to the press and say, yeah, like we fired the founder, but we brought in this, you know, <laughs> seasoned airline executive in the U.S. So I think the quote was if that they gave me was if Brett Favre wants to play quarterback for your flag football team, wouldn't you let him? You know, we, we might have felt differently as to whether or not we were Brett Favre on that team. But <laughs> but that's what happened. And so we were out and they were in. I got fired and read about it the next day in the Wall Street Journal. So that was the public firing that you were talking about? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Before I guess we talk about that for a second, you said you were buying these planes. Like, how many planes did you have before you were fired in the peak? We bought three, a couple million bucks each. And then as I was leaving, we were buying some more. I think a couple of weeks after I left, they executed a purchase for 65 more. And you only had three before that? We had three, yeah. You're going from three to 68? Well, the thing is, in airlines, we proved a market and it's working. And so then it's just about scale. An airplane, it's not like buying nuts and bolts at a hardware store, right? Like you put an order in that's in a pipeline, like they're going to come off on an assembly line, but the assembly line don't turn them out like Ford. It's like, oh, we can produce two a week. And so you want 65 planes, we can deliver them over the next five years. It's not something you just pick up off the shelf. And so, yeah, they put an order for 65. I don't know how many they ultimately took. I'm going to guess the fleet right now is, I mean, so we're four years later or something. I bet the fleet is still around 20 planes, maybe a little less. I'm still getting confusing. So when you left, there were only three planes, but you're saying they put in an order for 65 and now there's only like 20? Yeah, that's normal in aviation. 
the airplane manufacturer wants to be able to say they sold a lot of planes. The airline wants to be able to say they bought a lot of planes. So they order them for future delivery. And if they need to, they cancel those orders. Oh, so they just cancel a lot of most of them. Well, it depends. They're probably still on order. Okay. They can't deliver them that fast. Right. They can't produce them that fast. So I could order one, right? Order 50 of them right now, but just say they're ordered. You could order 50. You put down, you know, whatever the deposit is on that. And you could have them set for delivery starting in 2020, right? That would be a normal thing. How big is the deposit that they're putting down? Oh, I don't know. It was certainly millions and millions of dollars. Because it doesn't seem like it makes sense to me if they're, okay, you had three, literally just three airplanes, right? Well, we can go down this rabbit hole, but it's not going to help entrepreneurs. This is an aviation unique thing. I think it will help entrepreneurs because this is pretty cool. This is different. Here's why I'm saying that. If you have to put up that much money and put it, quote, unquote, under order, then you're wasting money that you could have used somewhere else, right? Not necessarily. So if I wanted to buy 50 planes and the planes are $4 million a piece, mm-hmm. so I put $8 million down and a year from now you deliver the first two planes. So I'm $8 million in and I have $8 million worth of aircraft mm-hmm. and I have $0 left on the remaining order. And so I'm on the hook for nothing when that third plane comes. So I give you $4 bucks for that plane then. So the proportionality okay. of the deposit related to the aircraft, it's just... Well, that's what I'm saying because my background is real estate. So if I had to put in an order or deposit down, that means per airplane, but it's really, it goes all the way to those first two airplanes. It's not like it's just waiting. It doesn't necessarily. I'm just saying that it could. I mean, it, it's a financial transaction and there are a million ways you could do that. You could do it with debt. You could do it with cash. You could do it with option value. You could do it with deposit down. But both sides have the incentive to juice that number. The airline wants to say how big they are and the manufacturer wants to say how many they sold. So they both like work together to juice that number is the reality of what happens. So there's another airline I know that bought a hundred aircraft famously and their whole fleet is only 17 today. It's been 10 years. It's just a normal like airline behavior. I don't know how to say that. But long story short, though, we had three planes. They bought a bunch more right as I was leaving. It's very interesting because there's not many entrepreneur air people that I think anyone will ever get to listen to. I think like you might be the yeah. only one. That's why I'm so interested. It's not like I'm trying to, I need to dig into no, every no. detail, but it's like, it's really just curious because it's a different business and we all hear about airlines never being profitable. So I'm just trying to figure out like, I'm trying to just make it as simple as we can for anyone who's listening on like how these transactions work. Yeah. Airlines aren't profitable because the model sucks. You buy tickets for things that are a privilege, concerts, movies, ball games. You don't buy tickets for things you have to do that suck, right? You don't buy tickets to go to the gym because you need to go to the gym. You don't want to go to the gym. And in the seventies, when airlines were you know growing like crazy and 50s, 60s, 70s, pilots were gods among men and celebrity chefs are cooking in first class, right? It's a different time. And that it was a privilege to fly. You were the only guy you know who'd ever left Boise and you came home and you were famous and everybody wanted to know what it was like to fly. And it's a different time, right? Now we fly, 80% of people who fly, fly once in the year. They're going to grandma's house for Thanksgiving or whatever it is. And the other 20% that are frequent flyers, they're flying all the time, but you fly because someone else is imposing on your time. That's the reality. Whether it's a family member, whether it's a client, whether it's your boss, somebody else said you needed to be somewhere else other than where you live. And so flying is rarely a privilege. Flying is often something you have to do but don't want to. So it should be priced much more like a gym than like a movie or a concert. But the models never change because airlines are inherently risk averse. Pilots run airlines. You're a good pilot, you get promoted. Now you're the chief pilot, you get promoted. Now you're a junior executive, you get promoted. Now you're the executive. Airlines are run by pilots and pilots are technicians, like surgeons, right? They do A, then B, then C, then D, and they do it every time and they do it perfect and they do it with no deviation and they know every 
sort of break in that decision tree. Every variation, they know when and how and what they're supposed to do, and it's perfect. So the guys running airlines are very, very good at running them the way they have always been run, but they are inherently not innovators by design, either by self-selection or by training. The last thing you want is someone in a cockpit flipping switches to see what happens, right? Oh, that one was the engine, bad idea. So you don't do that. So if you look at the five guys who have innovated since Howard Hughes in aviation, you've got David Nieleman at JetBlue and Kenny Dichter at Wheels Up and Mark Kijet. You've got Herb Keller at Southwest. There aren't very many guys, but they all share two traits. They all have ADD and none of them are pilots. And it's that ADD trait, that willingness to flip switches that makes them, that is common among them. That's the reason they're innovative. So they do things differently that to figure it out along the way. So coming from not aviation, I had that same sort of gift in that sense. I also got a raging case of ADD. So I fit the mold of ADD, not a pilot, you know, a switch flipper. So airline is an industry that's just super staid and doesn't change the way it does things. You come in from the outside and do things differently. What was interesting about that as an industry is airlines are known as being hyper competitive. If people just, you know, if you fly into Delta's hub city, then they drop their fares until, you know, go out of business. Like it's just hyper, hyper competitive. But for us, it was super cooperative. Everybody in the industry wanted to see us succeed because we were taking risks. They literally couldn't, right? The CEO of Delta or American, they can't say, hey, we're going to switch our model and we're going to sell all you can fly subscriptions. You get killed. I mean, their business wins right. They can't do it. Yeah, just based on their whole system right now, whatever computer programs and everything, yeah. Exactly. They're all built around price discrimination and adjusting prices as you get closer to the demand changes. We completely destroy that. Like We have no demand compression ability to impact with pricing. Instead, we do it with supply and some other things. But the model is just so different. They couldn't, but they all wanted to see us do it, to see what they could learn from it. I remember Dr. Kotal, the CEO of Turkish Airways, $7 billion airline. They fly to more countries in the world than any other airline. And they're the highest rated airline in Europe. Really, really great airline. Flew me to Istanbul. My CFO and I said, and we sat down and we're running a little $7 million airline. He's got a $7 billion airline. And I sat down and this is the humblest guy. He goes, so I wanted to bring you in to see what we could learn from you. And I looked at my CFO and I said, interesting, because we're here to see what we could learn from you. I mean, we're standing there looking at a giant who's looking at us and saying, you guys can do something I can't do. And so I want to know what the lessons are. It's a fascinating dynamic, but we literally, the closest thing we had to a direct competitor is an airline called Jet Suites. They flew Phenom 100s, which are very light jets. They flew out of Southern California to Vegas, to Northern California. That was sort of their milk run. That was where they made most of their money. And that's exactly what we were flying. That's the routes we were in. We were both in Southern California. And Alex Wilcox, who started JetSuite, he had been one of the founders of JetBlue, storied airline guy, knew what he was doing. And he was literally on the phone call that helped close my Series B financing. That would be like McDonald's raising Wendy's their money because everybody really did want to see us succeed. If I truly had an aircraft on the ground, you know, you can drive a car with a check engine light on. You can't fly a plane with a check engine light on, right? right? If I've got something that happens and that flight couldn't go, I really believe we never had to, but I believe I could have called Alex and he would have gassed up a jet, flown my people, and we would have figured out how to pay for it later. Are you or your company interested in reaching an audience of entrepreneurs? Our network and I are always on the lookout for businesses that we can partner with. Over the past year, we've been lucky enough to work with sponsors like Gusto, Start Engine, and Skillshare, and we've been able to help them grow their businesses by reaching our podcast audience of high-earning professionals business founders, and successful solopreneurs. Well, over this next year, we're looking for three to five new sponsors to partner with. 
So if your business could benefit by reaching the thousands of entrepreneurs listening right now, and you're actually serious about sponsoring our show, then shoot me an email at austin at millionaire-interviews.com. The first three listeners to place an order with us will receive a five-minute spotlight on their business that will air after one of our episodes. So again, if you're interested in growing your business as we grow this podcast, then shoot me a personal email at austin at millionaire-interviews.com or just check the episode notes below to find more information on this awesome opportunity. You're doing something innovative that they can't try. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, yeah, it's kind of mind-boggling. Again, that's why I'm like diving into this, just the flying aspect. We don't get to hear the insides and outsides of what actually goes on. I'm just trying to think though too. The last guy you forgot to mention, I think maybe that you're looking for is Richard Branson with Virgin. Yeah, Branson's another one. He's kind of like at least one of the ones that came up in my mind when I was thinking about this interview is like- Absolutely. ADD, not a pilot. First off, your subscription model seems like we've had entrepreneurs on who talk about making something that's newsworthy. That's automatically newsworthy, right? Like that's a press release kind of thing where yeah. you just draw marketing interest from there. So that's pretty cool and a different way of looking at it. So if you were just like a regular airline, just doing it per ticket, like you're saying, then I don't think it would have worked. Nobody would have cared. Did you think that ever about like leasing these planes? That's my understanding yeah. of what he does versus like actually buying these things. Yeah, we'd love to. <laughs> What's interesting though, is that we were flying planes that were traditionally owner operator aircraft. So we're buying planes with fewer than 10 seats. Right. Pilatus PC-12 is the plane that we flew. And when you want to go lease a 737, if your company fails, the lessor who owns those planes, they have a hundred other airlines they could go to around the world that also need 737. Okay. Gotcha. That now makes sense. We were the first people to do an airline in this aircraft. And so literally if they bought a bunch of planes, leased them to us and we didn't work, they're left holding a bunch of aircraft. They don't know where to go with them. So there was no lease option. Mm -hmm. There's nobody in the world leasing the planes that could do it for us. We tried. The best thing I could say is maybe like a Tesla now and being able to lease it versus Ford F-150. If you're releasing it, they can, from the manufacturer, being that there's so many different people that could end up buying it instead if, if there was an issue. Yeah, absolutely. What else did you learn from this? This is really fascinating to me. How about like the fares are for a certain gates? For instance, like Delta owns Atlanta. How does that work out? If you're going to a smaller airport, so you don't have to worry about that. Two airlines that did this, one in the Northeast and one in California. The first one in California is called Surfair. Second one we did was called Beacon. And then I was executive chairman as a third one launched in Texas called Rise. Rise was ultimately sold to Surfair and then Beacon shut down. But Beacon, we flew right into Boston Logan. We didn't necessarily go to small airports. We could go to big airports. You just have to get gate access like anybody else, pay landing fees like anybody else. But landing fees are usually done by size, the gross weight of your aircraft. And our weight was lower. So, cause we're a smaller airplane, you still have to comply to all the other things. You want to use the facilities, you pay for them just like any other airline does. I didn't know there was weight fees or like gate fees, what I was looking for. There's only a few airlines in the world that are, or in the U.S. at least, that are gate controlled. Mm -hmm. I think there's five where you have to buy slots. We usually just avoided those. The reality is in the U.S., the aviation infrastructure is the most overbuilt infrastructure maybe in the world. So freeways were built across the United States by a cavalry officer who became president and Eisenhower specifically so they could move tanks during the Cold War. There's a gradient. They're never higher than I think 6% because the tank would lose too much speed. Okay. Similarly, airports were built all across the country as a form of national defense mm -hmm. so that we could project force with our air force and protect the country, you know, all, all across the country. As a result, I'm trying to remember the number now. There are 27 airports in the U.S. that are completely overburdened. And I think there are 19,820 places you can land an aircraft in the United States. So there are 27 like Atlanta Hartsfield and Chicago O'Hare and LAX and JFK that you can think of that you're using that are totally overburdened. But half of America's airports 
operate at less than 10% of capacity. You could have a spaghetti dinner on half the runways in the country <laughs> because nobody's coming. Like there's nobody coming. Right. Yeah. Every congressman can get 10 million for his district to, you know, repave a, a runway, put up a new tower, et cetera. And so they do because they can bring money home to their district, new investment. And it's national security and it's national defense and it's all these great things. It sends all the right signals that they want to be sending to voters and whatnot. But the reality is it's a tremendously overbuilt infrastructure. We got to leverage that and go use that and say, great. Most people drive past two or three airports on their way to quote the airport. Right. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, there's two on my way. Yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. But that's only true in the U.S. There's no other country in the world like that. Europe, one of the reasons private aviation doesn't work nearly as well, as well in Europe is they don't have the overabundance of airports. Ryanair is able to do what it's doing. When it first kicked off in Ireland, the sort of $8 fare, super low cost carrier, et cetera, they used old U.S. Air Force bases outside of cities as their airports. They could buy them up and use them. But again, the U.S. built the infrastructure for national defense. And you just don't have that in Australia. You don't have that in the east coast of China. You don't have that in other places where this model would work great. Infrastructure isn't there. So it's kind of a uniquely American opportunity. Now, there are folks trying to replicate this model in India in China and Singapore and the Philippines and the East Coast of Australia, et cetera. But really it works here because the infrastructure, the country in the world with the second most airports that has the best opportunity is Brazil and Mexico. They're the next two probably best opportunities for something like this. And yeah, when you were talking about those airports, so 27 divided by 19,800, that's like 99% are fine. Or you're yeah. saying you can oh, yeah. your spaghetti, yeah. So that makes sense. If you're looking at it now, why aren't more trying to do something about the airlines and, and make startups like, uh-oh, you got something good? People don't like to do hard things. Yeah. There's a great quote. There's a reporter who asked Warren Buffett. They said, you talk openly about what your investment strategy is. You tell everybody what the formula is and how you do it. Why don't more people do this? And he goes, oh, that's easy. Nobody wants to get rich slowly. The reality is aviation's not fun. It's hard. It's, you know, you have a moral obligation to get this right. Oh, yeah. Like crashing a server is very different than crashing a plane. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And so you can't have a 99.9% .9 perfect, like, yeah. delivery. Right. right. Yeah. You've got to be 100. And so there's a different level of stress involved. There's a different level of operational diligence. There's a different level of regulation as a result because you're protecting consumers and the traveling public. And all of those things are good things, but it's not an easy business. And so the answer is people don't want to do it. What you get are people with, like, they call it jet fuel in their veins. It's pilots who love to fly. They drive motorcycles and they fly planes, right? And those guys are really good at doing it the way it's always been done. So you get very few innovators in the industry. You got fired. How'd that affect you though? Did you feel okay? That sucked. Yeah. No, that sucks bad. I remember walking to my house and passing a pizza shop and thinking I could go sling pizzas. And like there's zero stress. There's no shame in it. I could have a regular job. Nobody would know who I am. Nobody would care. I could do the job great. I walked into the grocery store and I thought, you know, I've never thought of running a grocery store before, but I bet I could do this. After running an airline, I'm pretty sure I could manage the logistics of a grocery store. And you could probably make good money doing that. You know, I started to look at all kinds of things. I also had to get out of Santa Monica. My investors were local. They were great guys that I had really admired. And I felt like they had betrayed me, taken advantage of me. I didn't, you know, it's a first business. I made mistakes that I wouldn't make now. I learned a ton, but you'd rather take more than a moral victory away from building <laughs> yeah. something like that, right? So I had to get out. We ultimately moved to Texas shortly thereafter, simply because I didn't want to run into those guys on the street. I felt shame. I felt like I let my wife down, my kids down. I felt like, I don't know how to put it, like not a man. People today will ask me, what's your greatest fear? And the answer is always failure. It sucked, but it's a weird thing to say, but I almost... I wish everyone could have an experience as enlightening as being fired in the Wall Street Journal because you're paralyzed by this fear and a lot of things you do in your career and other places. 
of like, oh, people would know, or what if I got fired or whatever. And it's super liberating to have lived through that and realize like you wake up the next day, life goes on, it's fine. Your wife still loves you. Your kids are still there. Like everybody's still healthy. All the stuff that matters is still fine. And it's more than a moral victory, but you did learn a ton from this. And while you know that, other people might know it even more. This is a silly one, but the first thing that being fired did, so I had a buddy, Chris Terrell, he called me the day after that article came out. He's like, hey, I'm in LA. I'd love to get together. I hadn't seen him in a year and a half, probably. But he was in the group, actually. He was in those 25 guys that we had. I hadn't seen him since. So it had been two years, maybe two and a half. Like, I'm in LA. I'd love to get together. And I was like, hey, man, it is not a good weekend for me. Normally, <laughs> yeah. I would love to see you. But like, all I wanted to do was sit in a dark room and cry. You know, Eat ice cream. Go. Exactly. <laughs> Just leave me alone. And he goes, no, I know, Wade. I know that's why I want to talk. I was like, all right, then let's get together. <laughs> You're like, what? So we go to dinner and he's like, hey, I'm running an investment bank. We just bought half of the Australian Small Scale Offerings Board, which is the most successful crowdfunding platform in the world. And I need help turning this company around and directing it the right way. Would you come be my co-CEO? And I was like, you want to hire me? He's like, yeah, I want you to be CEO, just like me. CEO A, CEO B, whatever you want to call it, I need you. And I was like, okay. I didn't know that I was going to be valuable to anyone. But what being fired did was tell the world that I was available. So I'd had this very public success. People saw what we were doing and we were executing well. And despite the public failure and what felt like a dumpster fire of, of a life at that moment, what everyone else had seen was a couple of years of this guy executing at a very high level. And now he's suddenly available. I didn't know that that would be the outcome, but it was, it was like Annie. It's like, the sun will come out tomorrow. And like, boom. So I took the job. I said, yes. And I got on a plane. I went to Manhattan. My wife was like, I thought we might take a little break. And I was like, why? I, I don't want my kids to see me not go to work. Like, boom. And I was on a plane and I went back to work. And we did that for, I don't know, nine months or something and helped point the company in the right direction and launched a new product at TechCrunch Disrupt and raised some money and made some changes to the team and moved offices and moved along. And then I left that late that year and went and started another airline. But I didn't know at the time that the signal it was sending was that I was available, not that I was a failure. When you got fired, did you get any money from it? I mean, had you... <laughs> <laughs> so the literal definition of panic, I think, is something like the inability to have rational thoughts to make good decisions. So your limbic process cuts off. Your limbic process is like propagate the species, avoid danger and eat. You know, it's like the, the, the core things that cavemen do. And then you get your higher order thinking that happens in your frontal cortex. Panic is when that limbic process cuts off your ability to get to the neofrontal cortex. You don't make good decisions anymore. And in that moment where I was getting fired and I didn't understand everything that was happening and guys on the board were not being truthful with me, some were, and I would really to this day respect them because they were direct and forthright. So look, I'm going to vote to make some of these changes and let me tell you why. And then others were lying to me, telling me that I was their guy and they were already recruiting. Another like it just, I didn't understand everything that's going on. I don't deal with dishonesty well. And so I went in and they were like, they need me to sign something on the way out. <laughs> right. Like it's critically important. I left with 21 grand. What I said at the time was I just need to buy my wife a minivan. Right. That's what I needed. And so they paid me my back pay. That was it. And I left. I didn't take much from it. I still had my stock. They immediately did an internal down round to wash out the original founders because we all had common stock and uh, we didn't have the right to buy our pro rata share. So they then just fund the company internally at, at a new low valuation and everybody gets washed out and cap table gets reset. So they did that. And I went from 30% ownership to like 3%. But you said you were in that mode of like, 
What don't they call it fight or flight response pun intended or no? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Cortisol <laughs> kicks in. Like. <laughs> I guess you had to sign it. I mean, I think I would have drawn a penis on the signature or something like that. <laughs> I don't. Know. I was not happy. I felt like I had fought to as far as I could reasonably fight. Right. Ultimately, you know, my brother sued him for 180 million bucks, and I think he settled. He can't tell me, but he's now retired and lives in Florida, so I'm pretty sure he settled. <laughs> From what you know, he sued him, and I was unwilling to do that. I had investors who said, look, if you want to do a shareholder lawsuit, we'll do that with you. Candidly, that's not how I want to make my money in litigation. I want to be the guy who builds great things. And I could have fought for the business and probably won. And I would have got back a shell of the company that I had built. But I had 80 something employees who had put their livelihoods in my hands because I had sold them a vision. And I could either let that vision go on without me and they could keep their jobs and continue to build something great. And I fall on the sword or I can fight and fight for it. And I win and all of them lose. I made the decision to let them have their jobs and let them have the win. And I would have other opportunities to win. And that's what I did. Do you have a few more minutes? Because I know we were going over. Yeah, sure. And I've done over 100 interviews on here. And I, this is the most fascinating one to me. Just like the ability to learn, cause especially with the airline stuff. Uh, I guess if you went to aviation school, you might have an idea of like the pilots from the airlines or whatever. But the economics, I don't think you can even Google stuff like this. Like that's what's so fascinating to me. At that point, you said, I know you went to go work for your buddy's company where you're co-CEO, but then you started another flight company. We did, yeah. So when I was in Dallas, I was executive chairman of Rise as we launched it. And a couple guys there saw what we did at Surf Air and said, we could do this in Texas. We want to clone the model. They said, will you come be the CEO? And I looked at them and I said, I don't know them. And I remember we were eating lemon ricotta pancakes in Santa Monica, some beach somewhere. And I said, well, do you want to be the CEO? And he's like, well, yeah, of course. I'm like, then why don't you be the CEO? I'll sit on the board and I'll give you all the advice you need. I'll move to Texas. And, uh, and you know how to do a board takeover so you can do that, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I'll be good to you and you guys can pay me and I'll sit on your board and you build the business then. And they said, okay. So I moved to Texas. We did that. They launched Rise. And then I moved up to New York and I launched one called Beacon. And we screwed Beacon up. We did it largely with the same team we had before. We added one new founding member, great guy named Brian Morley. But it was Corey Cousins and Reed Farnsworth and myself who had all you know done surf air together. So same team, same model, new geography. And we screwed it up. We made two bad decisions and killed it. Sat down with our board and said, hey, this is how we've screwed it up. This is where it's at. You can probably fight your way out over the next 18 months, but it's probably not the best use of capital or time. And they said, yeah, we agree. And so let's try to put the business down the right way. So we did that. One thing I will say is business schools, entrepreneurs, everybody loves to talk about how to build a business and no one will teach you how to shut one down the right way. And it's just as critical a skill because a good entrepreneur I always say that an entrepreneur is like a screenwriter. They have a half-written scripts in the drawer. You kind of know what other business ideas you have and you keep a little file of them somewhere or whatever. You're going to build more than one business. That's likely the case. And so how you handle it when things don't go well, shutting one down the right way says a lot about who you are and whether or not people want to back you in the future. And it just does a ton. It says, for me, it's a, it's a character and an integrity thing, but shutting one down the right way is way harder than building one. And everyone wants to give you advice on how to build one. And there's not like a group of folks like, oh, you're shutting one down. You know, I've shut four down. Let me tell you how this goes. Like nobody wants to be that guy. I actually think there's a huge opportunity in sort of business related literature and otherwise to talk about how to shut a business down the right way. And so you felt you did that correctly at Beacon? I felt like we did it as well as we could. Yeah. If you did, what's your advice? And since they don't have that out there and people, again, can't really Google this type of stuff necessarily. Well, Every business is different, but we knew the business was not sustainable. So we shut it down and we still had, I don't know, maybe 15 grand. But we had a whole bunch of people who had put down deposits, $500 deposits for an airline that is now no longer flying. 
So we kept that money in an account so that we could refund anyone who asked for it. Right, wrong, wrong. If they flew on us, like they, they weren't entitled to it. But if they emailed us and asked for it, we still sent them a check. Things like that that make, I would rather have people talk about how the, this great company, they were excited to fly on and they didn't make it rather than saying this company that screwed me. Good open communication so people know what's going on, so they know why, they know how to get. So everyone, every single one of our customers had my cell phone number and personal email that didn't go away when the company went away. So they could reach me if they had a question, if they wanted to know, if they wanted to call me and complain about why it was no good, what had happened, if they wanted to tell me what they thought we did wrong and could have done their, like whatever it is, I was available to them. And then I worked with our, so we had both equity and debt that we had raised. So when you shut something down, debt sits ahead of equity in the asset stack. So basically you have to pay off the loans before you can pay anything to shareholders. In our case, we didn't have enough assets to overcome the amount of debt. So our investors got nothing and our creditor, they get everything, but they don't know what to do with like an aviation brand. They don't want to deal with 12 laptops and like there's a little military stuff, like little stuff. They don't know what to do with, you know, we built a software system that can handle all you can fly subscription bookings. And so they've got it all. And I went out to LA to see him and I said, look, here's the thing, guys. I invented all you can fly airlines. There's probably nobody in the world considering this concept that won't call me at some point for advice. I'm easy to find. Like I'm super Googleable in the sense that like I've got a unique name. So you plug in my name, it's all me generally, good, bad, or otherwise. And so eventually they all call me. So there's probably nobody better positioned to figure out how to monetize the assets that are here than me. So I know I just like forfeit them all over to you, but why don't you let me buy them from you? And I will split anything I can get out of those back with you guys to pay off the debt, right? And they're like, that's great because otherwise they're just holding an asset they don't know what to do with, right? They got to figure out what to do with it. They're probably just going to write it all off. And I really am best positioned to try to do something with it. Not only does that help save the relationship with that bank, which I still think I've got a good relationship with, but I really can help continue to work to make sure that they don't lose money on investing in me. So you're working with different stakeholders, right? You've got shareholders and investors, you've got creditors, debtors, you've got customers, and you need to be working to handle it in the best possible way with each group. And it starts with, I think, transparency and communication, but also goes with like, what are their needs and how can you help meet them now? So over the last couple of years, I've spent hundreds and hundreds of hours on a business that I will not make any money from trying as yet unsuccessfully to recoup value for the guys who loaned me a million dollars at Beacon. And I still have an account with a couple thousand dollars in it in case somebody called and said, hey, I want a refund, right? Like eventually we'll shut that down, but it's been two and a half years. You just want to make sure that you can do it right. Well, what didn't work if you use the same model as Surfair, right? With Beacon. Yeah. But it was a stage more in the Northeast versus where Surfair was flying. Yeah, we did two things differently. One, the thesis was that we could, now that the FAA knew us, we were a known commodity and we proved subscription flying was a good thing you know, getting our approvals was going to be a lot easier. And so now we could go pre-sell and we could go sell out before we launch. So we launched profitably. So we went out and sold until we had 600,000 in monthly recurring revenue before we ever launched. And we had people put down deposits. And so that was the plan. So we thought to ourselves, who can sell an intangible good? Who can sell something that doesn't exist today? And the answer we came up with was political fundraisers that are good at selling $10,000 handshakes and $5,000 pancake breakfasts. And so we hired guys from Mitt Romney's team and Charlie Baker's team and guys and girls who, you know, had their fundraising list of folks in the Northeast who probably fly a lot and are certainly in our demographic. And we set the team loose and they sold 600,000 in MRR by August. And so we went out to everybody and said, good news, we're getting ready to launch in September. And three out of four said to us, oh, don't launch. I don't want to start until insert future date here. 
So what we had done is sell without a fixed launch date because we wanted to sell out before we launched. But that meant that they all had a misunderstanding in our view. We had poorly communicated that when we launched, they were on the hook. So they had put cash deposits down, like we had taken money. It's not like you just had an email sign-up list, but they all just thought they'd wait to start when they wanted. So what we found out was we didn't have nearly the sales we thought we did. So either we could hunker down and sell more, or we could launch and let our launch accelerate the rate of sales to sell our way sort of back out of the hole. At both at, at Rise and at Surf, that had happened when we launched, like sales went up. So we made the decision together with the board that that's what we would do. So the first decision that hurt us was political fundraisers because, and the second one was launching when we shouldn't have. Because what happened is, as soon as we launched, our sales dropped nearly to zero. It was so wildly different than anything else because three weeks to figure out what was going on. And ultimately, political fundraisers are really good at selling you know, folks something that's an intangible good. But they also sell you one time and then they just keep you happy until the next time they can sell you on a different campaign. So they immediately switched from being sales folks to customer service folks as soon as we launched. They were just keeping their own lists happy. So we were too smart by half, right? Like we thought we had outsmarted the problem. And in the end, it ended up hurting us because we weren't then driving sales anymore. And we had launched, so our burn rate went up by a factor of 10. And so instead of being able to hunker down and having the money to see it through, we were burning cash at such a rate that it was unsustainable. And so we had to shut it down. So would your suggestion for someone be like, kind of do what you did, but say it's going to happen within like a certain period and you have to pay within those three months or how would you suggest anyone else? Because this can be used for anything, not just starting an airline. Yeah. I mean, picking a fixed start date would have been helpful because again, it comes down to communicating. We didn't have one because we didn't want to launch unprofitably. It seemed like a risk to put a launch date out there. And then once we did publicly, we felt all this pressure to live up to. In the end, it would have been much less embarrassing to say, oh, never mind, we're not going to launch now until January, than it was to launch in September and then shut down in March. We would have been much better off to just eat a little bit of egg on your face early. I mean, always share bad news up front. And we should have shared that with our customers too. And said, oh, no, we thought we could launch, but we can't yet. From there, that's when we started, what are you currently working on today? No. So I, uh, in the course of doing that, I told you earlier that airlines were more cooperative than you expect. In the course of launching Surfair, I talked to a guy named Kenny Dichter who had started Marquee Jet. He invented jet cards as a concept and then you know, went on to sell that to NetJets and became vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway. Just a really, really sharp guy. He'd always been very kind to me. And we went around selling the assets, trying to figure out what we could get for what we had built. And ultimately he said, look, the real asset here that we want is you. Uh, what did it take to get you here? In the end, I said, look, give me 30 days. Let me help find my employees' jobs. And then I'll come back to you and we can talk about it. And so we did. So I ended up in Wheels Up for about a year, year and a half. And I was uh, managing director of new ventures where I helped run new markets, new products, M&A activity, that sort of thing. And I did that for probably 15 months before I rolled off as they were getting ready to prepare for, for a future IPO. Looking back with the Education Insurance Corporation today and you're doing that, it sounds like it could be a game changer as far as, I don't know if you have other competitors or not, the way of looking at the educational system kind of similar to, like you were saying, the aviation industry and what you were doing. Yeah, I don't think anyone looks at student debt the way we do. Like it's a large leveraged investment market. In that, I think we're the only ones. There are other ways that people hedge their risk and income share agreements, trying to work through college, scholarships and grants. They do other things to try to keep their debt burden low. We think we provide a solution that first-generation American, first-generation students and the poor can particularly benefit from because they're making an outsized bet relative to their net worth when they go to college. No one would ever counsel you to spend 10 times your net worth on a single bet with no insurance and no hedge around it. And yet every American parent tells their 17-year-old kid to do exactly that. And they can't bankrupt themselves on it. There's no bankruptcy protection. Like, I mean, it's mob money, right? It's a terrible type of debt. You cannot get away from it. And so 
we think we can help them de-risk that. We think we can help increase graduation rates. And ultimately, that's 110 million American families that are directly impacted by student loans. I mean, you have the average person takes 21 years to pay them off now, which means for the first time in history, you will still be paying your student loans when your child asks you to co-sign on theirs. It's now a multi-generational impact. One in eight divorces cite student loans as the reason. You've got 40% of all student loans have a net negative amortization rate. Like people are making payments and they owe more than they did you know, before. I mean, it's truly, truly toxic. It is certainly the next great financial crisis in the United States. And if we can help de-risk that, we can still let people buy the positive impacts of going to college and education and what that does to your career, your outcomes. It's, it's good for society. It's good for the families. It's good for the individual. We still need people to get the education. We've just got to make it less risky to take that chance. So to participate in the American dream, we call it American dream insurance. We can make sure that everybody not only has access to it, but they can do it in a responsible way. Are you less stressed now than you were when you're doing the airline stuff? Much. Yeah, I imagine. Why is that? Nobody dies. That's exactly what I was thinking. It's both seem like a huge headache to me personally, you know, having to deal with yeah. the regulation and stuff. But I could see why, like you were saying, people don't want to get into space to deal with that. You have to have a 100% success rate or else there's going to be issues. I have a theory I call the iron balloon, right? Like big companies, if you look at the startups that are the highest valuation, they're all in heavily regulated space. From like Uber to Airbnb to whoever it is, they're all in heavily regulated space. Theranos, doesn't matter. They're all heavily regulated space. And the reason is big companies help draft legislation. Our legislatures, Congress, they're well-meaning folks that aren't experts on everything. So they call lobbyists on both sides of an issue and they try to get smart around something before they vote. And so big companies end up drafting big pieces of legislation. And what happens is they were innovative and they essentially filled the balloon full of gas and they just don't want to be popped, right? They want to hold their position. But they build a big iron bulwark of regulation around them that prevents anybody else from sort of popping them. But if you're willing to fight through that little air nozzle, right, that little bit at the bottom, and you do all the upfront work, then you get in and you've got nothing but growth in your balloon. So the biggest startups are always those that just fought that regulatory challenge early on and, and then are able to scale and grow massively. So I'm totally willing to take the headache early on that other people want to avoid. I just want to make sure I'm doing it in a way that, you know, the first businesses I helped rich people fly, like get around the country easier. Maybe a great business, but you're probably not doing fantastic things for society. With this one, it feels like we get to do a tremendous amount of good for the most vulnerable in our country while making reasonable money doing it. No, that's how I feel about the podcast as far as like, say, it felt like I was making old rich white guys more rich with what I was doing before versus hopefully helping even people all around the world who are listening to your story, which has been fantastic and just like learning from it because it's stuff that you can't always learn. And I guess I, my term for it was crony capitalism as far as like what you're talking about where big companies start wanting laws and statutes in their favor to keep other smaller companies from coming in their space. So it's an issue in the US, but kind of unfortunately everywhere. So everyone who thinks like capitalism is a bad thing it's not if we started everything from clean slate with no laws or anything or jurisdictions behind that then i think it'd not be an issue but it becomes one once you have those guys being able to donate as much money as they want to get the people in charge that they want well i think everybody rich or poor ought to have the ability to express their opinions and do that with their dollars and do that with their voice and the fact that some folks have more means than others shouldn't restrict their voice but i do think we need to think beyond ourselves self-interest is a powerful motivator but as my dad used to say when I was a kid, I'd rather die a good man than a rich man. And we need a little more character instruction. We need a little more focus on being good to each other than just short-term wealth accumulation. Wealth will not make you happy. Wealth will make life easier. It will not make you happy. But being good to the people around you, being loved, that will make you happy. And that those two things get conflated so often because so much of us need 
more than what we have, right? There's so many who I grew up poor. I grew up on and off of government assistance. We need help. We need a hand up. We need, you know, encouragement. We need all these things. And so we strive and strive and strive. And money is a great facilitator to making a lot of those pains go away early on. A lot of that suffering eases. But if you let that continue to be the driving force forward, there's a place, I think it's somewhere in $60,000 a year, at which point money no longer buys happiness. It just doesn't deliver that result anymore. It does early on because you went from hungry to not hungry. But at some point, you went from not hungry to still not hungry. And if you're not thinking about how do I become happy now instead of how do I become rich now, you miss the point. Yeah, I've definitely heard that stat too. It's like the 60 to 70K range. It's like you can still afford the same things that someone who has 10 or $100 million does because you can go in a plane, but maybe you won't be able to do it as luxuriously as them, but you still have the opportunity to do all those things. Yeah, I mean, you know, Warren Buffett once said, he's like, my life is the same as the average middle American life with like two or three changes. One, anybody on the planet will take my phone call. And two, I can get there faster because I can fly private. But beyond that, we both go home and watch the Super Bowl on a 45-inch TV in our living room. You know, the average middle American family and Warren Buffett probably have a similar TV in their living room. The life of a middle-class American would have been aspirational for kings just three generations ago. The 1950s, they couldn't imagine the conveniences that essentially we all have now. We don't pause to think about how abundant the world is. Peter Diamandis has a great book and talks a lot about abundance and how like poverty has fallen faster than at any point in history in the last like 25, 30 years. Wealth has grown faster. You know, health has expanded faster. Like the reason population's booming around the world is because babies don't die at nearly the same rate they used to. And more of us live to adulthood and then more of us are contributing. And so the rate of innovation and the rate of invention are both, you know, at, at all time highs in world history. We really live in a world of fantastic abundance, but part of that abundance has created a communications world where it's so easy to hear of the most extreme cases of things happening around the world. And we're programmed for risk. We're programmed to, for that fight or flight to see something dangerous. So if you want to get clicks, if you want people to watch your news show, you tell them the most, the scariest thing you can and people will pay attention to it. That's how we're hardwired. So now communications is you know, global and information can move in a nanosecond that you will hear the worst thing that happened in the world as though it happens all the time. The number of kidnappings in America has fallen by an order of magnitude in the last hundred years. There were 2,000 bombings in the 1960s, like school riots. See how many bombings there were in the U.S. this year? You're talking 40 years later, and it's like, I don't know, 15 tops. It's wildly different. And yet our parents today won't let kids go play outside for fear of them being abducted. We just massively overstate risk because of the communication dynamic now. Some people think it's really risky to even start a business, right? But it's not as risky as you think. It's much riskier not to and just accept the life that falls in front of you and creating the one you want. We appreciate you coming on and staying extended. Like I said, it's a fascinating story. And there are so many points that I even wrote down while you were talking. But is there any like a last words of wisdom or anything for anyone who's listening and struggling to start a business or trying to start a business? Like, what would you want to say to them? On your deathbed, you'll never regret doing it. You'll only regret not doing it. You'll say, I wish I would have. You won't say, I wish I hadn't. If you're thinking of doing it, just do it. And it'll be hard and it'll be harder. And you don't know what to do next. And the answer is ask a lot of people until you figure it out. Well, if someone wants to say thank you for doing the interview, Wade, what's the best way for them to say thank you to you? I'm easy to find online on Twitter or Facebook or my email's public everywhere. My phone number probably is too. But yeah, feel free to reach out and ask if I can help somebody. I'm more than happy to. Every entrepreneur got help from other folks. I'm happy to give help to other entrepreneurs. Feel free to reach out however you'd like. I'm easy to find. All right. Well, thank you for doing the interview, Wade. Thanks, brother.
Hey there, one special announcement for you. Are you or your company interested in reaching an audience of entrepreneurs? Our network and I are always on the lookout for businesses that we can partner with. Over the past year, we've been lucky enough to work with sponsors like Gusto, Start Engine, and Skillshare. And we've been able to help them grow their businesses by reaching our podcast audience of high-earning professionals, business founders, and successful solopreneurs. Well, over this next year, we're looking for three to five new sponsors to partner with. So if your business could benefit by reaching the thousands of entrepreneurs listening right now, and you're actually serious about sponsoring our show, then shoot me an email at austin at millionaire-interviews.com. The first three listeners to place an order with us will receive a five-minute spotlight on their business that will air after one of our episodes. So again, if you're interested in growing your business as we grow this podcast, then shoot me a personal email at austin at millionaire-interviews.com. 